Reading from Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 to 10. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights Virtual Service. Thanks for joining us this morning. And uh, today we are in the second part of our series in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. So if you remember last week, we said that this letter is shot through with emotion. And, you know, Paul is really sort of wearing his heart on on his sleeve. And we said that the, the thing that Paul is so emotional about is the gospel, or, or rather the Galatians turning away from or abandoning the gospel. That's what's uh, got Paul so emotional. And I tried to show that by taking Paul's emotional tone seriously, we can already begin to fill out some of the meaning that the gospel had for Paul. So approaching this from our own experience, if you remember, we said that if the source of the most intense emotional turmoil that, that we experience in our own lives is usually the result of intense relational turmoil, well, then perhaps Paul's emotional response to this situation is precisely because he understands that in a world full of people alienated from each other, isolated from each other, separated from each other, the good news about Jesus offers us a way back to each other. That is, as far as Paul is concerned, it is the only hope for all of us collectively. And so to abandon the gospel of Jesus is to abandon each other, and to abandon each other is, in a sense, to abandon the gospel. So this week, we'll begin to look beyond the emotional charge of this letter to the content of Paul's argument themselves. And as we do that, I want to deepen our appreciation for this relational dimension of the gospel that we've already been talking about in this series so far. I want to begin by considering the historical uses of the word gospel. From the first century, the word gospel has been used to describe a book about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels. In the last century, it was used to describe a particular sort of religious meeting, a gospel rally, they were called. Many churches today claim to be gospel-centered churches. It's, it's a way of signaling their, their orthodoxy. Most churches, including our own, want to announce the evangel, the, the gospel. And of course, in contemporary popular usage, it's a metaphor for utterly reliable information. Look, I'm telling you the gospel truth, we often say. But I want to go back before all of that, but before contemporary popular usage, before last century's talk of gospel rallies, even before the first century church's vernacular where a gospel is a book about Jesus. I want to go back before there were any gospels, before the writing of the New Testament. I want to go back before the history of the church. I want to ask how the phrase gospel or good news or glad tidings was used prior to Jesus himself. Because understanding 
the way it is used before the writing of the New Testament might actually give us a clue as to what the authors like Paul had in mind and uh, when they used the, the term themselves. Remember, Paul uses the phrase gospel 12 times in this letter, six times in the first chapter alone. Now, there are two historical uses that uh, we need to consider. One, one of them grows out of the Jewish background and the other out of the pagan uh, Greek-Roman background. And scholars have tended to claim that one over the other as the sort of the appropriate backdrop, the appropriate background, which will supply us with the correct meaning for the phrase good news. And so I want to take a brief look at, at both and we'll, we'll start out there. So, First of all, some say that Paul is essentially a Jewish thinker. So let's look at that first. So, so in other words, when Paul uses the phrase good news, he has in mind the Jewish meaning uh, given to it and, and used by the Jewish prophet Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah says. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good tidings, good tidings, gospel, good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. These passages, in company with others, are among the sort of climactic statements of Isaiah chapter 40 to 55. So there's 15 chapters in Isaiah in which we are told repeatedly over and over again that other gods are false, that Yahweh is the only true God, and that the only true God is going to return to Zion and be enthroned as king. And that the true God will fulfill the covenant promise by bringing Israel back from her captivity and exile in Babylon, ruled as it was by those pagan false gods. So the point is, this is not just sort of a general miscellaneous good news. It is very specific to the plight of Israel in exile. What's interesting is that even after their return from Babylon, Jewish writers still use the term in the same way, because even though they'd returned from exile, the temple remained empty and the land was ruled by a pagan empire, Rome. So around Jesus' time, Israel was still reading Isaiah's words whenever they opened up those scrolls and looking for their fulfillment. And so naturally, many say that well, this is the natural background, the framework that Paul has in mind when he uses the term good news. This is the good news of Isaiah, which he saw fulfilled in Jesus. You can see already why an understanding of the historical Jewish use already provides a richer meaning to the word gospel, which appears 12 times in the book of Galatians, six times, as we said, in the first chapter. Others, however, insist upon the non-Jewish background as the vital one. They argue that Paul is borrowing categories 
from the pagan world, from Greek and Roman worlds, where the term good news was actually a technical term for news of, of victory, or more specifically, as we've said before, it refers to the announcement of the birth or ascension of an emperor to the throne. Um, look at this, for example, written about Augustus, who became the first Roman emperor uh, following a long period of, of civil war. The providence which is ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending him, as it were, a saviour for us and those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the world of the glad tidings that have come to men through him. The coming of a new ruler meant the promise of peace and a new start for the world. And that's why the Romans announced the new emperor's rule as gospel, good news, or glad tidings. So, when Paul says good news, when he uses his phrase gospel, which background does he have in mind? Is it the Jewish background or the pagan Roman background? Well, the answer is, of course, both. Paul had both in mind, that they actually go together. It's true that Paul had in mind the Jewish Isaiah passage, but the trajectory of that passage in Isaiah, which declares, your God reigns, means that Paul would have also had in mind the Roman use of the term. He would have had that in full view as well at the same time, because Isaiah's message always was about the enthronement of Yahweh as king on the one hand and the dethronement of the pagan gods on the other. It was about the victory of Israel on the one hand and the fall of Babylon on the other, about the arrival of the servant king and the consequent peace and justice, which the Roman emperors also claimed to bring. In other words, the message in Isaiah pushes itself into the world where pagan gods and pagan rulers were staking their claims. The pagan context always envisaged the new monarch as, as a gift of the divine, or perhaps even an expression of the divine itself. And Isaiah's hope was always conceived as a challenge to that paganism at every level. So in other words, the more Jewish we make Paul's gospel, but by tying it to Isaiah, right, the more it actually confronts the pretensions of the imperial cult and other paganisms. It's because of Jewish monotheism that there can be no king but God. And so there's this all-embracing royal and religious claims of Caesar are, are being directly challenged by the equally all-embracing claim of Israel's God. To put it another way, to announce that Yahweh is king is to announce that Caesar is not. Good news, Caesar is Lord, said the Romans. No, no, good news, your God reigns, says Isaiah. Okay, so fast forward now to the New Testament. And with these contexts in mind, these two different uses of the term in mind, I think we have a better understanding of what Paul thinks is happening 
in the situation going on at the church in Galatia. Paul says in a verse that we, we looked at last week, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul seems to equate turning away from the gospel to turning away from God himself. He says you're turning away from the one who called you. You're turning away from the one who called you, he says. If the gospel is first and foremost about announcing the reign of God over all of his creation and over all of humanity, then as far as Paul is concerned, when the Galatians turn to another gospel, it is tantamount to denying the reign of God over humanity and denying the reign of God over all of his creation. It's as if the Galatians are in fact heralding another false god. Good news, your God reigns, says Isaiah. Good news, Caesar is Lord, says Rome. If we go to chapter four, Paul again likens what they're doing to turning away from God and going back to false gods, to pagan lands, to pagan gods. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? This is the language of Egyptian slavery, of Babylonian captivity, of Roman occupation, with all the false gods that came with it, of Pharaoh and Cyrus and Caesar, how is it you're turning back to these weak and miserable forces? Do, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? So why does Paul think that they're turning away from God? Well, there's a twist of irony here. It's because they were insisting on all Christians following strict adherence to Jewish law or to the Torah. In verse 10, he says, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Elsewhere, he talks about how the Galatians were insisting on every male being circumcised. But wait, how is following the Jewish Torah, God's law, turning away from God? Well, the traditional answer says that this is because they were trying to earn their personal salvation by works. They thought that by doing good works or following the Jewish Torah, observing certain days, being circumcised, doing all these things, they could earn their personal salvation. But God has now made a way for us to be saved by grace in Christ. So the law was given to really show that we couldn't save ourselves, and therefore, Christ, God has now made a new way for us to be saved by grace in Christ. And if we look again at chapter 1, verse 6, that certainly seems to be the point. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But remember, 
when Paul says you, like when he says, I'm astonished that you are turning away, when Paul says you, he is using the plural you. He's talking to them as a congregation. He's addressing their collective lives together. And so when he talks about them being called to live in the grace of Christ, that is the unmerited, unearned kindness and favor of Christ, he's not thinking of them as sort of atomized individuals. He's not thinking about how each individual earns their salvation or not. He's actually addressing how they live together. The one who called you, that is you plural, to live in the grace of Christ. Um, we might add to live together in the grace of Christ if we want to, to get Paul's precise meaning. What had happened in Israel in Jesus' time and onwards, and, and what the church in Galatia was being was experiencing as well, is that they've been taken captive by a form of Jewish nationalism, which insisted that the way that you make God's reign a reality on earth is to dig in as deeply as you can into some form of Jewish national and political identity. And so the nation was what mattered. Perhaps blood ties to Abraham is what mattered. The land is what mattered. Circumcision is what mattered. Torah adherence is what mattered. So that instead of their lives together being an invitation to the nations to come, come to God, they used the Torah to sort of lock themselves up inside their own nationalism that they'd weaponize the Torah so that they could keep the sharp line of separation between people. And so a form of this type of Jewish nationalism was seeping in to the Galatian church. That's the mistake the Galatians were making. And it's actually a mistake that you and I can easily, easily make today. I have made it. Because I can take nationality and use it to draw a line between you and me. Or perhaps I can take my political party and use it to draw a line, a sharp, dividing line between you and me. It says you and I are not together. I can take my race and use it to draw a sharp, dividing line between you and me to say you and I cannot be together. I can take my favorite theological system and use it to draw a sharp dividing line between you and me to say you and me we you and I we cannot be together or oh, surely not my good Christian theology but think about it if they could take their God-given Torah and do that with it then yes I can do that with my oh so wonderful theology but that's the point if I use my theology to draw a sharp dividing line of separation between you and me, as far as Paul's concerned, it's terrible theology. It is turning from the one true God. In fact, the whole purpose of Christian theology, the reason why Paul invented Christian theology, and when I say invented, I don't mean, I don't mean the contents is invented. I'm just saying that the, the practice is invented, right? So the reason why Paul invents Christian theology is precisely to maintain and sustain the unity 
of the church to maintain and sustain the unity of the body of Christ. That's what it's there for. So, so any supposedly Christian theology that ends up sharply dividing us and telling us that we cannot be together is not Christian theology at all. It, it's, it's Christian theology gone bad. And it's not as easy as saying, well, I'm not a white nationalist or an American nationalist or a Christian nationalist. So, you know, I, I don't have to, to worry about this stuff. I'm, I'm not like those terrible people. I actually get regular emails from a group of people in the city who are dead set against white nationalism. Yet at the same time, they're using their theology and they're using their politics to draw very sharp lines between people. And so it, their theology is not a sort of an invitation to come, come back to God and let's come back and be with each other. And so it doesn't really matter how you are dividing people. The fact that you were using anything, including theology, to divide people, to say, we can't be together because of this, or we can't be together because of that. Well, that's the issue. Because there's only one image-bearing humanity. And to divide that image-bearing humanity, to say to one set of image-bearers, we can't be together, is to engage in a quasi-paganism. It's to find our humanity defined, ultimately defined by something else, some other God, something that has become God for us. Of course, this would have been shocking to the Galatians because most of the Galatians had formerly been pagans. And, and Paul is essentially saying, by using the Jewish Torah, the way you're using it is to actually revert back to a form of paganism, because this is precisely how the pagan empires wield their own badges of national and political identity. So I think, I think that last week we were right to assume that the heightened emotional tone of Paul in this letter is precisely because Paul sees that the relational stakes are actually that high. The seemingly well-meaning attempts to follow Torah, intended, I'm sure, to resist the power of the evil pagan empires, Paul thinks will actually lead the Galatians to become explicitly involved in the violence of empire themselves, because it always begins by dividing humanity against itself, by defining humanity by some other idea and some other god I recently heard someone say that they're not so worried about the divisions in our society because, oh, we would never slaughter each other because, well, we're too advanced. I'm not even going to bother to unpack all the problems with that statement. But perhaps it can be the foil for us who know what is really at stake. And perhaps it will make us think harder. Think about how we can disentangle ourselves from the violence of empire. So this week, in your community groups, or perhaps on your own, or with friends, I would encourage you to make a list of the ways that we are actively encouraged by the world around us 
to abandon each other. That could potentially be a very, very long list. But I think becoming aware of the ways that we're encouraged to abandon each other, where we're told that this is really the only right course of action. I think that's really important for a community like Trinity Heights, like ours, that, that longs for the opposite. Remember, the point of Christian theology is to sustain and undergird and fuel the unity of the church. So how is our theology, the way we talk about God, serving that purpose? Another question we might want to ask ourselves this week. Another way of saying this is that the purpose of the gospel is to lead humanity back to each other, which is why to abandon the gospel is to abandon each other, and to abandon each other is to abandon the gospel, and to abandon the gospel is to abandon the God who calls us to live together by the grace of Christ. Amen.